following message is from the 2015 IBCD Summer Institute, equipped to counsel. Hey, it is great to be with you. I'm so thankful for IBCD and for the ministry here. I'm thankful for Jim, who is uh, a guy I respect very much, so thankful for Craig. And it is a privilege to be here to speak about important things. And it's hard for me to imagine something more important than speaking about how we help people who are going through great difficulty. One of the tasks of a counselor is to walk with troubled people through what will often be one of the most, if not the most, difficult seasons of their life. And it's our sacred task to figure out uh, how to love them and care for them as we are guided by God's Word. I was asked to speak about the necessity of biblical counseling. I'll, I'll ask you to please consider this part one of two parts. So uh, you might think that we're ending when we get done here tonight at a bit of an awkward spot. Um, and uh, there's, there's more coming, I'll say about that. The necessity of biblical counseling. I, I hope this isn't like me speaking to you about the necessity of biblical counseling. I hope it's not like a surgeon speaking to his patients about the importance of medical care. You kind of operate under the assumption that a person who needs to go see a surgeon knows that medical care is important. And perhaps you already know that biblical counseling is necessary. But the reality is I don't know who I'm talking to. I see some familiar faces in the room here. But I don't know everybody's story here. And when the church thinks about counseling, it seems to me that there are basically three approaches to Christians and counseling. And one, one set of Christians thinks that counseling isn't part of what we're supposed to do. They love Jesus, they love the Bible, but they just think counseling is what professionals do. And by professionals, they mean people who have been professionally trained. And by people who've been professionally trained, they mean people who've been secularly trained. And uh, you come to church to learn how to pray and listen to sermons and do missions and those kinds of things. But counseling is something altogether different. And there we need to go see people who are psychologists or psychiatrists or something like that. A second group of Christians who think about counseling think that Christians absolutely should be doing counseling. They think that this is the work of the church. And they think that the Bible is an important book to help us figure out how to do that. But they just don't think the Bible is enough. It's not dissing the Bible. It's not an insult to the Bible, they don't think. They just think God inspired a book that's about how to get saved and walk with the Lord, and that's not necessarily about what counseling is about. And so um, we want our counselors to love Jesus and love the Bible, but they also need to know more about life and counseling than that, and so we need the Bible and we need psychology. A third group is the group that says the church and Christians do need to be thinking about counseling. And um, they do 
need to use the Bible. And when they use the Bible in counseling, they are using a sufficient resource to help troubled people. This would be biblical counseling. This is the perspective that I'm coming from. This is the perspective of ABCD. And I don't know where you're coming from exactly, but I want you to know that it's my goal and my prayer tonight to speak to all three groups. If you don't think that the church needs to be concerned about counseling, I want you to believe that biblical counseling is necessary. If you think the church ought to be concerned about counseling, but we need something more than the Bible, then I want to try to persuade you that biblical counseling is necessary. And if you're here believing that the Bible is necessary and sufficient for counseling, then I would like you to believe more about that than you do right now. So it's my task to try to talk about the necessity of biblical counseling to you, regardless of what your perspective is. And as we think about that, it occurs to me that no married couple ever looked at one another and the husband never said to his wife, you know what? Our marriage is awesome. And we don't have any problems. I mean, we've got so much money in the bank that I am not worried about the bills that we're going to pay. And our sex life is mind-blowing. And our kids all love Jesus and have prayer times every morning. And the cars work. (laughs) And our church is faithful and they love us. And when was the last time we had a conflict with somebody in church, by the way? No, No husband has ever said that to his wife and then said, I think we need counseling. Because counseling assumes trouble. By the time you need counseling, you are in trouble. Nobody, nobody looks out the window and says, I'm loving life, I'm living the dream, I'm going to go talk to a counselor. It's, it's just assumed that by the time somebody's looking for counseling help, they are in trouble. Counseling happens in a world where there is pain. Counseling is needed when you sense that you are in great trouble. You're looking around and you know there's a problem. That problem might be relatively small or it might be relatively big. But people who are looking for counselors are people who know that they are in trouble and they know they can't fix the trouble on their own. But they are persuaded that if they don't have help, then things aren't going to be all right. Things aren't going to be fixed. It's actually challenging at times to talk about the importance of counseling without being depressed. 
Because counseling so assumes trouble. Counseling's about trouble. And the Bible is a book about trouble. Now, you might, you might be able to think of more uplifting ways to speak about the Bible, and I could too, but in the context of a conference about biblical counseling and a talk about the necessity of biblical counseling, we have to say that one of the ways that we can describe the contents of Scripture is that it is a book about trouble. It's a book about serious trouble. It is a book whose pages are filled with trouble and sorrow and pain and brokenness. And the Bible when it speaks about this trouble, when it addresses our trouble, it it addresses our trouble in categories that are shockingly honest. Shockingly sobering. The Bible arrests us with how honest it is about the trouble that we experience. The Bible helps us by giving us categories to think about our trouble. One category that the Bible gives us for our trouble, our trouble that requires counseling, is to talk about the issue of human sinfulness. The Bible is uncomfortably honest that you and I are sinners. We don't, we don't like that. We would rather think about other things. Um, but there's the Bible over and over and over again pointing out the issue of sin in our life. So many famous passages that we're familiar with, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, A really uncomfortable one is Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We're, We're familiar with that passage. If we're Christians, we're accustomed to hearing it. But that is not a fun passage of Scripture. The wages of sin is death. And if you've ever sinned in your life the instruction of that passage is that your sin is going to pay you something. It's going to kill you. It's going to bring about death. People need counseling because people are sinners. People need help when they sin and their sin bites them back. See, this is, um, this is, the, this is the problem with sin that we, we look at it and what it means to be tempted to sin is there's something about this sin that seems so appealing. There's something about this thing, whatever it is. It could be any, any source of temptation, but you look at it and the lie is if you do it, it will be so fun. If you do it, your life is going to get so much better. If you do it, you're going to get this wonderful reward. Nobody ever sins 
because they're looking at the consequences of their sin and they're going, you know what? Uh, I'm going to ruin my life. Nobody ever sinned because they saw clearly how much death was going to come into their life because of their sin. And they decided it'd be a good idea to do that because they don't want to be happy. They don't want to have joy. They don't want to have peace. Everybody always sins when they believe the lie. And then sin won't be controlled. It won't be mastered by us. And it punishes us. It reveals the lie and we realize we're in a lot of trouble. We're in a lot of hurt. I know a man I'll call Tim who uh, was a man who was walking with the Lord. He was a member of a church that I was pastoring at the time. And uh, we, my wife and our family knew him and his wife and their family. We spent a lot of time together. And uh, he was a businessman who traveled around a lot and he was on one of those trips, and one of the women that he was traveling with was a beautiful woman. And they decided they'd grab a drink one night after they were done working in the lobby of the hotel. And uh, he's sitting, drinking with this woman, and she lets him know that she finds him very attractive. And she lets him know that she is happily married, but that if he wants to, they could go up to her room together and nobody would ever have to know about it. And he went because it seemed like it would be a blast. And I found out about this because he called me three days later. And uh, I was one of his pastors and he said, Heath, it's Tim. And I've talked to him on the phone before, never, never like this, never him beginning the conversation like that. And I said, hey, how you doing? And he said, I cheated on Sarah. I committed adultery three days ago when I was out of town. And he started to scream over the phone. Why would I do this? He screamed. Sorry. But that's what it sounded like. I don't think I'm saved. What am I going to say to my wife? I need your help. Screaming at me through the phone. Totally devastated. If he would have looked past the woman who wanted him to come up to her hotel room to screaming at his pastor a few days later, he wouldn't have done it. But that's not what he saw. He saw the appeal and the allure of sin that would not make him content. And then his life was in a lot of turmoil. We're going to counsel 
people like Tim all of the time. And if we don't have a category for human sinfulness as an occasion for pain, we will not be able to help Tim or the others like him who sin in all kinds of other ways. That's only one manifestation of the kind of trouble that human sinfulness brings into our life, though. Because people need counseling because they are sinners, but they also need counseling because they've been sinned against. This is where Sarah comes in. My wife and I knew Sarah. Known her for years. She was a great wife, is a great wife. Faithful Christian woman. And she was like too many women we've known, too many wives we've known in our ministry who was flying blind. And they came over to our house one night the next night after Tim called and he didn't know how he was going to tell her what he had done without me and Lauren there she knew something was up but she didn't know what she had no idea how serious And he and I had talked about what he would say and the four of us sat in our living room as he sobbed and wailed and confessed that he was unfaithful to her while he was out of town. And she sat on our sofa and was breathing so heavy, I thought she was going to hyperventilate. I thought she was going to lose consciousness. And she started to sob and rolled on the floor. And with her face muffled by our carpet, her voice muffled by our carpet, just said over and over and over again, why, why? Why? Sarah didn't do anything wrong in this particular sense. She was being a faithful wife. She was being a a loving, tender wife, giving of her body sexually. And yet she got burned by human sinfulness. And if you don't understand the issue of human sinfulness, you are not going to be able to help Sarah, who was ready to blame herself, by the way, and spent weeks blaming herself. What did I do? Where did I fail? Where did I blow it? I'm not pretty enough. I wasn't giving enough. And if you don't understand the way sin works, you won't have anything meaningful to say to her to counteract that lie. That sin can burn you even when you don't sin. In fact... The double meaning of Romans 3.23 is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you are going to experience the awful consequences of sin in your life. Your own sin in your own life. But the other side of Romans 3.23 is you live in a world full of people for whom it is true that they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you are going to experience the fruit of your sin in your life. And you're going to experience the fruit of the sin of others in your life. And if we don't know that fact, we can't help people. Here's another category of pain in the Bible. It's the category of the world. Look at 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 
to 17, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So if you're paying attention, this is a little bit of a confusing passage. You've got the Apostle John writing not to love the world or the things in the world. The same Apostle John who wrote John 3.16 and said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so what's going on with, uh, with our brother, the Apostle John? God loved the world, but you should not love the world. Well, he's talking about the same term in two different senses. When God loves the world in John 3... He loves the people in the world that his son came to save. But that's not what's going on with the world when John writes about it in his first letter in chapter 2. He says in verse 16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. What the world is in 1 John 2 are all the things in the world that lead us away from a pure love of the Father. They are the things, the desires, the pride of life that tempt us away from believing that God is enough and that these things will satisfy us. These things will make us happy. The world, in 1 John 2, is, as many have called it, a world system that is opposed to Christ, that is at odds with the kingdom of God. We live in a world that is opposed to Christ. And if you don't understand that, you will not be able to counsel people who struggle with this world that is opposed to Christ. We live in a world that far more than accepting illicit sex embraces and celebrates illicit sex. And it makes purity a challenge. There are so many men I know men with names like Heath Lambert who want to be pure I don't want to commit adultery I don't want to embrace illicit sex but we live in a world that makes that fight a real fight we live in a world where pornography is legal listen We're so saturated with this that uh, we're just accustomed to living in a world where one of the most hateful things in the universe is allowed by us. Women are being killed, are being ridden with disease, are being trafficked. Our daughters and our sons are being corrupted before they even get into the double digits by this. And our world says, it's fine. 
We as sinners are responsible for our sin. The world isn't responsible for our sin. But we live in a world that makes our fight for purity hard. And if you don't understand that, you won't be able to help people. That's not the only way we experience the fruit of the world, the bitter fruit of the world. Next week, gay marriage is going to be legal in all 50 states in our union. And if all the predictions are wrong and that's not true, then it won't take much longer past next week for that to happen. We live in a world where that makes sense. We, we live in a world where you can say gay marriage and people understand what you're talking about. And in fact, the only thing that's wrong is to say that's wrong. This is, this is serious. I was just in a part of the world where if you say gay marriage is wrong, you will be investigated by the government. And they, not to mention we, have it comparatively easy. I was in a part of the world before that where it's illegal to evangelize, where it's illegal to meet as Christians. I was in a part of the world having a meeting like this where such a meeting was illegal. And if they found out the meeting happened, they would have arrested everybody in the room and deported me. That's the world system that is opposed to Christ and his gospel. And listen, in that part of the world where I was, um, I was... I was meeting with a room full of pastors over a period of a couple of weeks. And every night I had dinner with one of these pastors. And every night I had pastors crying because people in their church had been arrested. Wives, moms had been arrested and taken to jail. And nobody knew when they were coming back because they confessed the name of Jesus Christ. If you don't have a category for the world as it is opposed to Christ, you can't say anything helpful to those men. Another category of trouble in the Bible is the devil. The devil? Really? People get nervous about this one. You're going to talk about spooks here? Goblins? The devil? Really? The devil? Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5 verse 8. <clears throat> Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Yeah, we believe in the devil. Now, you say gay marriage is wrong, people think you're hateful. You say the devil's real, people just think you're crazy. They just think you're completely nuts. 
And yet the Bible says the devil is prowling around. And so we believe it. In fact, the Bible says when you're sober-minded, you'll understand this. It is the consequence of a sober-minded reflection on life that the devil is real. So if you don't believe in the devil, I take it you're not a sober-minded, cautious thinker. The Apostle Peter talks about the work of the devil in horrifying terms. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you do a Google search for lion eats zebra, you don't have to go to work for a week with all the YouTube videos that are going to come up. And I'm a father of two boys, and my boys love to watch lions eat zebras. All right? They love to watch lions fight with tigers. They love to watch the crocodile come out. You've seen that? Crocodile come out and try to eat the hippo or whatever it was. Somebody's had to have seen that in here. Like 50 million people have watched that thing. We like to watch the National Geographic version of a lion devouring somebody or something. But nobody wants the lion to do that to them. When you think about the work of the devil, you're supposed to think about a gruesome, horrifying picture where a lion savagely eats up its prey. That's what the devil is trying to do. Now, this... um, This one makes us wonder. We're going to say, okay, I'm a Christian. I'm going there. I believe the Bible. And the Bible says the devil's real. So I'm going there. But what does that really look like? It's possible to think about this and consider it as not a really legitimate part of your experience. Well, the Bible, when it talks about the operations of the devil, it talks in very concrete categories that don't have one thing to do with superstition or red cartoon characters with the horns and the tail and pitchfork and all that kind of thing. Those cartoons can make us expect something from the devil uh, that we're not going to get. So what, what, what does it look like when the devil is troubling you? Well, look at 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. This is what God's word says. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What does it look like when the devil gets involved in your life? 
Well, there, there are many pictures like this in the Bible, but one picture that we just read is the devil doesn't look like the red cartoon character. He looks like a man in your church who's always stirring up strife. He looks like the guy that is argumentative. He's never happy. He's always complaining. And he just stirs up strife all the time. And to deal with him, the Apostle Paul does not command some kind of exorcism, but he calls pastors in this context to be really, really godly. Don't be quarrelsome. Be kind to everyone. Be able to teach. Endure evil and do it patiently. Correct your opponents with gentleness. And it's as that happens that God may give repentance to this person and allow him to escape from the snare of the devil. The devil's real. And you see him very often when he's stirring up strife in your church. Not always, all right? Don't go back home and, you know, find the argumentative guy and say he's got the devil. Um, He might, but you don't know that. Um, Just be kind, gentle, correcting with gentleness. That's one picture. Let's let's look at another one. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter seven, verses one to five. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What does the devil look like? Um... Yeah, I'll, I'll be very candid with you. I, several years ago, I um, went on a trip out of town. And a woman at a restaurant uh, propositioned me in very bold and in very, very graphic terms. And nothing like that had ever happened to me before. All right? I mean, I'm not the kind of guy that women are thinking is going to make their dreams come true here. <laughs> I wish you hadn't laughed at that. <laughs> but whatever. It just proves I'm right. If you could see me without my shirt on, you'd know just how true it is. But... Uh, God is a gracious God and 
you don't have to endure that. But you can pray for my wife, you know. <laughs> but uh, this woman comes up to me in this restaurant, and I have never had this happen before. And I got up and left, and it really shook me quite a bit. And I've got four guys in my life that know everything, and I called each of them and told them this, and we all prayed together. And then the next week, I went out of town again. And uh, in fact, I was with one of those four guys out of town. And in a different restaurant in a different city, another woman came up to me and in much more bold and in much more dramatic terms um, essentially invited me to come upstairs to her hotel room. And I just don't even know how to tell you how troubled I was by this and how even scared a little bit I was. And I got away from her and went back to the friend that I was traveling with we prayed together and read the Bible and third week I go out of town again and I'm staying at another place, another town completely different trip and a woman in even more bold and dramatic terms that I would be embarrassed to repeat to you what happened um, insisted that we commit adultery. Well, she didn't. Nobody says you want to commit adultery. That's not what she said. But you know what I mean. You know, <laughs> would you like to break the seventh commandment together? No one does that. Um, but that's what she was after. And I was um, completely horrified by it. I'm just telling. In fact, I've I have never ever shared this um, with a group before. But it messed me up. And I thought long and hard about quitting ministry because my ministry required me to be traveling. And uh, Lauren and I talked about it, and I'm like, I, don't, I just don't want to be out of town. If this is what's going to happen when I'm out of town, I just don't even want to do it. And with those four men and with other people and with my wife, we decided that that was not the right response to this right now, to, to quit. Um, but you know, all four of those guys that I love and trust and respect so much, all independently, they said, Heath, we think that you need to consider that this might be a coordinated satanic attack. Now, I don't know that it was a coordinated satanic attack. But we read 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 5, and we see that's just the kind of thing that the devil would do. The devil loves to look at men and women weakened in a, state, in a state of weakness and tempt them with sexual immorality. And here, as before, the solution in the immediate biblical context is not some kind of exorcism, but is in your marriage, you need to be having regular sexual intimacy with one another. Because if you're not, the devil might tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is a sobering picture that the devil could be aware of our weaknesses and temptations in this area and might tempt us. This is what the Bible says. The devil 
is way scarier than a red cartoon character with horns. Sometimes the devil looks like a beautiful woman when you're away on a business trip. Sometimes the devil looks like a hunky man who wants to talk to you when your husband seems distant. If you don't believe in the devil and if you don't allow the Bible to shape your categories of how the devil works, there are all kinds of people in all kinds of trouble that you will not be able to help. Another category of trouble that the Bible gives us is a category that I'll call confusion. We are people who are confused. Now, just to be clear, part of what it means to be a human being is to be limited in our knowledge. God did not make us to be omniscient, to know everything. That is a category that is reserved exclusively for the Lord. So God made us to be people who need to grow in information, who have limited ability to understand the truth. But with the fall of the human race, our essential limitations with regard to knowledge is matched by a sinful lack of dependence on the Lord who is the source of all knowledge. And it creates confusion. Limited knowledge, which is part of creation, Separation from God, which is part of the fall, creates the status of confusion for us. And that just means that we often in all kinds of ways that are unintentional don't have any idea what we are doing. Look at Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18 beginning in verse 13. The next day, Moses said to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I'll give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You'll be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. 
Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Moses here was not doing anything wrong, per se. He wasn't guilty of sin in this particular instance. He just was doing the best he knew how to do with the job he'd been given, but he needed somebody to come along and give him advice about how to do it better. He was a confused person about this. His, his knowledge was limited in a way that caused him pain. When people talk about counseling, they often talk about the great big hard cases. People want to know about what you do with the real messes. But the real messes are really, honestly, only a small percentage of the counseling that's available for us to do. I uh, teach, as Jim said, at Southern Seminary, which has an undergraduate institution. And so there are, between both schools, there are about 5,000 people roaming around Louisville, Kentucky, and they're getting educated at the seminary, and they're between the ages of 18 and 30 maybe. And a lot of them aren't married, and they would like to be. And there's all these 20-year-old girls and all these 20-year-old boys. And I could never do anything again except meet with these people and answer their questions about, I don't know who to marry. I mean, it should it be this guy or should it be that guy? Or, I'm in a relationship with this, with this girl. Do you think I should marry her? I don't know. There's things about her that are a little scary. <laughs> and uh, this is going to be one of the biggest decisions in my life. And if I marry her, am I going to ruin my life? Now, we laugh at that because, well, because it's funny. <laughs> we laugh about it. But they don't think it's funny. They really feel turmoil over this. They really are agonizing over the confusion they are facing in the midst of this decision that is a decision of great consequence. That's just one. Uh, People who are trying to figure out where they should go work. All the time. Church members, Christians, uh, people that live in your neighborhood. They get job offers and they don't know what to do. I was talking with one couple one time who did not know whether they should take a job that he had been offered in Milwaukee or a job he'd been offered in Maui. Okay. (laughs) All right. So that's maybe not the best example, but actually it sort of is. Because we laugh, and I did. He should have gone to Maui, and that's what I told him. And not all for the reasons that you're thinking. Um, but, But this was not a laughing matter for them. They were really torn about family and work responsibilities and the health of their marriage and what this was going to look like. This was a source of real trouble. And they said, we need some help sorting this out. If you don't understand the category of confusion, there's going to be all kinds of people that you can't help. One final category that I'll mention here tonight is the category of death. Death and dying. 1 Corinthians 15.26 calls death the last enemy. It's the last thing we'll have to fight before we cross over into life and peace and joy. 
but it is a brutal enemy. I, uh, I realized this. I was, I was a pastor uh, for years before this event that I'll tell you about. I, was, I walked with all kinds of people. I was, I was a pastor in a very traditional Southern Baptist church uh, in Kentucky that had a lot of older people in it. And I think, I think before, I think by the time I'd been in ministry five years, I think I'd done like 70 funerals. Um, I had been, uh, I'd been in the hospital rooms of a dozen people when they died. It is a sobering thing to participate in. I thought I knew what that was like. And then in 2010, uh, my mother um, got a cancer diagnosis and was given six months to live. And she made it four. And I don't know how to tell you how hard that was. The final few months, she came to live with us. And when the body of a human being shuts down, it is an awful, awful thing to watch. It it wouldn't even be appropriate for me to describe to you the things that were happening in the bed where she slept in our home. It got so bad uh, that we actually could not care for her in our home anymore. Hospice was not able to accomplish all that needed to happen, and so we had to take her to a hospital uh, for what turned out to be her final two weeks of life. And that final two weeks was horrifying. Sitting in this hospital room every day with my mother and watching her die. And I can remember the last night that um, she was alive. I had um, read the Bible to her, some passages from Second Corinthians that she liked. And I laid on her body. She had shrunk down to like 85 pounds. And I just sobbed. I had a sense this was the end. I didn't know it was her last night, but you just, the breathing was labored and I just sobbed uncontrollably as the life drained out of this woman. And I didn't think that anything could be worse than that. And then, in 2012, I was at my dad's house. He's playing with our kids, bouncing them on his knee and grilling hamburgers. We were listening to George Strait, Alabama. We were listening to Alabama. We lived in Kentucky. And um, we had a great time. We left on Saturday evening, and he said, Son, I love you very much. I said, I love you too. We gave each other a kiss on the cheek, and I said, I'll see you next week, because that was the plan. And on Tuesday afternoon, I got a call that he had lost consciousness at his work and had been taken to the ER. And by the time I got there, he had died. He was in his office at work and his assistant came in and handed him the document that he needed. He smiled at her and said, thank you. Took it 
and dropped over dead of a massive heart attack. They tried to revive him. They didn't appreciate that he'd been, he was killed instantly. And as painful as it was to go through the death of my mother, it was one of the greatest aches of my life to walk through the death of my father. My mom went so slow, but there was time to say goodbye. There was time to pray. My dad went so fast and there was never any of those final conversations that you understand are the final conversations. And just as I, I learned a lot of things going through those situations, but one of the things that I learned is, you know what? We're all going to die. And it will either be quick or it will be slow. But they're both bad. There's, there's just no two ways about it. They're both bad. Quick or slow, they both have the sting of death. It is a final enemy. And that's just one way. Those are just two ways, I should say, to experience death. We can experience the death of people that we haven't even met yet with miscarriage, for example. We didn't have an opportunity to build a relationship with this person that we love so much. And now they're gone. And we never even got to see them. We don't even have to talk about the ultimate death. We can talk about the throes of death where our body just demonstrates that we're headed that way. This is everything from a head cold. It just reminds you that your body is weak and it will give out one day. To horrible congenital birth defects. All the things that weaken our body, all the things that are wrong with us and we don't even know yet, even in the United States of smart America, we don't even know how to diagnose this problem. But it just reminds us that we are weak and we are going to die. Now that doesn't sound like a motivational speech. But it's not supposed to be. This is one source of difficulty that we will all face. That we will all confront. And if you don't know how to help people with the category of death and dying, you will not be able to help people. That's five categories of trouble in the Bible. I was asked to speak about the necessity of biblical counseling. Well, we need counseling. We need counseling. We're not at Bible counseling yet. We need counseling because people have these problems. People are not happy and carefree and joyful all of the time. So thankful for moments in our life that are precious and joyful. But these problems do happen. For many of you, they are happening. And if they haven't yet, they will. And if you don't think that, you're not paying attention. We need counseling because we live in a world with these problems. We experience them. The people sitting next to you experience them. Your family experiences them. Your church members experience them. We live in a world with trouble. And we've got to talk about it. We need help. And so we need counseling. 
we need biblical counseling. Because if you were paying attention for these five categories, they might have seemed relatively garden variety to you. You're Christians, you hear about sin, and you hear about the world, and you hear about death and dying and confusion and the devil. You hear about these things. That says, well, what what do we need to hear about this for? I came to a biblical counseling conference, and I wanted to hear about the necessity of biblical counseling. What's with the rehearsal of all these problems? Well, do you know that in a world full of this kind of trouble, that Christians are the only people who know how to identify it. Think about that. Nobody sees these categories. Who's a secular psychologist that sees sin? Who sees that? Who is the psychiatrist that's talking about the devil? They just do what you just did. They just laugh. Who sees these? They see confusion. Nobody's perfect. They see that. We're limited. Of course, we're limited. We don't, nobody knows everything. They see death because they cannot deny it. They have to deal with it in ridiculous ways. The most common way is you just have to accept it. And there's a measure of wisdom in that, but it's not enough. So they see maybe two. But they don't see the rest. There is an entire industry of people who are devoted to counseling that don't know what's wrong with people. They do not see the problems. And you do. If you are a Christian who reads your Bible, you see things that somebody with a doctorate from Harvard and 20 years of experience cannot see. And you know what that means? It means you are the only people who can really help. I mean, just think about that for a moment. You are the only people that can help. Because you are the people who are not blind to what is actually wrong. Why do we need biblical counseling? Because everybody knows people have trouble. But it's only the Bible. It's only God himself that knows what's actually wrong. And in his kindness, he's told us what's wrong. And we have to listen to him. And we have to help. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we think about a heavy reality like this, the problems that people face. I pray that it would give us confidence in you and in your son, Jesus Christ, who tells us what's wrong. Increase our conviction to be people who know how to help. Increase our conviction to be the people who use the Bible, which is the only thing that tells us what's wrong and tells us how to help. And Father, I pray that we wouldn't just understand what's wrong. We wouldn't just diagnose problems, but that we would know how to move towards solutions. And Father, help us to do that in the rest of our time together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2015 IBCD. All rights reserved.
More free audios are available at www.ibcd.org. 